for about an hour and a half, I tried to very quietly walk in so I don't disturb them. And I take one foot in the door, and he looks up and he said, Well, Mr. Martin, it's good for you to finally join us. I'm looking at him going, how, how could you say <laughs> so, I can't get a word out of my mouth until he says, You know, no, no, i tell you what, don't even, don't even. Just have a seat right there. He points to the front row. There's nobody sitting in the front row. You just sit right there. I didn't have a chance for the class to understand. I'm not the delinquent these made me out to be. The whole rest of the day, every question, I mean, not one went anybody else's way. He'd say, now what about this on page so-and-so? Tim, for the whole rest of the course. So I, uh, I kept that in mind because about a year later, Chad's taking a course uh, with Doug, and he, uh, he has a flat tire. And, um, and so I think uh, I go out and help Chad, and I realize Chad's going to be late for his class, which is with Doug. With Doug. So I called Doug and said, listen, Chad's going to be late, and he had a flat tire. I thought you'd want to know. He said, Yes, thank you. So Chad walks into class, and from what I gather, it's a big lecture hall. Chad walks in, and he steps in the door, and he says, Well, Mr. Cook, glad for you to join us. And Chad is going to try to explain that he's had a flat tire. There's no idea that Doug knows. And so Doug said, You know what? Stop. Let me guess. You had a flat tire. <laughs> Chad said, Well, well, well. He said, You know what? Stop. You have a seat right here. <laughs> so um, uh, those are those are some of the many stories of life uh, uh, under his wings. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Um, all right. Well, we we looked at a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah. Let's talk with some probably some more the heavy stuff first, and we'll talk some because there's a ton of good application force out of that as well in terms of our normal lives. At the same time, there's some theological, <clears throat> theological questions here. Okay, so is it true that there are places in the text that Jesus admits to not knowing things? Yes or no? No. Uh-uh. Uh, and to think that is to misread certain texts. Um, and this is something, um, you know, my seminary students, as, as you're probably aware of, have a difficult time getting a good handle on. I mean, it is obviously true that in the Gospels we are told that Jesus grows in wisdom and knowledge as well as in stature and favor with God and men. Uh, and so people will say, well, how can he grow in knowledge if he's omniscient? And that's a good question, right? Uh, and there are, of course, the other uh, example students will usually bring up because they're puzzled about it is uh, when Jesus is asked about you know, the day and the hour. And he says... No one knows the day and the hour except the Father, not the angels in heaven, and not the Son. Right? And so students read that very straightforwardly and think that Jesus is claiming not to know something. Now, what's critical, first of all, to understand is that whatever else the church has historically affirmed about Jesus, about God the Son becoming human, uh, whatever else has, has been affirmed, one of the things that the church very explicitly and very strongly has always affirmed is that in his humanity, Jesus nonetheless lacks nothing of divinity, so that he is omniscient. In fact, uh, one of the early church fathers, an early church father named Athanasius, has a work entitled On the Incarnation, I think it's On the Incarnation of the Word, if I remember right, the title of it, 
But Athanasius, this uh, important early church father, is writing on this issue and takes up the question of omnipresence. You know, because God is everywhere, right? God is omnipresent. And that means, well, if, if Jesus is fully divine, he must be omnipresent. Now, it might surprise you that Athanasius, in company with the church, actually says, yes, he is omnipresent, right? He, he's, he's everywhere. And of course, uh, that may be hard for us initially to grasp, but that just underscores the fact that uh, the church historically has said, look, even though he is fully human, he has lost nothing of his divinity. Now that raises questions about how we understand such texts. Yeah, let me ask you this yeah. then. So you're saying that he is on the earth as a human, but the whole time he is still fully omniscient, that is, he, he still knows all things, mm-hmm. fully omnipotent, fully omnipresent. That's yeah. the claim. Yeah. But don't we have text like Philippians two that says he did not uh, see uh, you know uh, equality with God as something, something to be exploited. He himself. I mean, doesn't that mean that he took the omniscience and he set it aside for a little while? And he took the omnipresence and set it aside. I mean, why can't we just answer that? It would make a lot. It seems like it would deal with those texts a lot easier if we could just say set those aside. Well. Um... Yeah, it might deal with those texts more easily, but it would also deal with them non-Christianly, right? Uh, and um, and if you have a choice between dealing with it Christianly, but hard, and easily but non-Christianly, I would suggest exactly right. So, so and and I think you know the kind of reading you're suggesting of Philippians two is not uncommon, right? People read the language of two seven Philippians two seven, which describes Christ as having emptied himself. People uh, in our context often read that to mean uh, that Jesus uh, gave up his divinity. It's critical to understand, first and foremost, the church historically has never understood that text in that way. But that raises the question, well, what then does the text mean when it speaks of Christ as emptying himself? And here we have props. Um, kind of knew this issue would come up. So, right, But we have props, right? And... You know, I've got water in this cup. I got nothing in here. Okay. Well, before you do this, let me pause and say I've struggled with this idea for so long, could not make good sense of it. And you walk into a class, he does this, and I go, Ah, God, this is really helpful. All right, no. Which is something very abnormal. To be in a class where God did something is really helpful. Yeah. Uh, By the way, as as I use these props and do this demonstration, let me point out I am a professional. Please don't try this at home. <laughs> right, but right now notice we can talk here about my emptying the cup. And if we talk about my emptying the cup, what we mean is we're taking the contents of the cup and divesting the cup of it. Right? Emptying the cup, right? Removing what's in it and putting it somewhere else, right? So we can talk of emptying the cup. And the reading, Tim, that that you were mentioning of Philippians two seven is treating Christ like a vessel who's emptying his contents out of himself. Right? Does that make sense? Now notice though, we can also speak not of emptying the cup, but rather of emptying the water. And if we speak of emptying the water, what do we mean? Well, we're not treating the water like a container and saying we're taking its contents out. Rather, if we speak of emptying the water, what we mean by that is that we're pouring the water out in full. When Philippians 2.7 describes Christ as emptying himself, this is the language of a drink offering. 
The point is not he's a vessel who divests himself of something within. The point rather is he pours himself out like a drink offering on our behalf. That's the point. And if you note the parallel text in uh, Ephesians 5, that sacrificial language shows up there as well. Now, in that text, it's not a drink offering, it's a burnt offering, right? Paul, in the letter to the Ephesians, describes Christ as offering himself up as a fragrant offering. That's a burnt offering. But still, it's, it's, it's the parallel point. We are to see Christ as the one we are to emulate. Why? Because he is supremely humble, and this humility... Uh, led him to pour himself out or to offer himself up as a sacrifice on our behalf. That, that's, I think, what that text means. Is, he, is Jesus <clears throat> eternal? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, well, it depends on what you mean by Jesus. Is the second yeah. person of the Trinity eternal? Absolutely, okay. yeah. And, and you caught what I mean by it depends Absolutely. on what you mean. Usually in professional circles... We use the, the name Jesus to refer to Christ in the incarnation, right? So if the question is, is he always incarnate? Well, there's a time and a place where his physical body and his human mind, right, be, come to exist, right? So the, the human body and the human soul that he takes on in, in virtue of becoming human, those are not eternal, but he's not identical with those things. Okay, now you, so yeah. second verse of Trinity is eternal. He's always existed. There's never been a time he didn't exist. <clears throat> That's correct, yeah. Has he always had a human body? Um, no. So when did that happen? Uh, when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived of the Spirit. Okay. Right. That that's when the body that is Jesus's human body came into existence, and it developed like any human body would develop. And Although so, the beginning of it was miraculous, obviously. And so when we talk about him emptying himself, he empties his full divinity into this human body. That yeah. Sometimes I sometimes I put it that way, right? He pours, it, and I think this is really beautiful language, uh, and I I think it's remarkable the way Paul puts it but he pours himself out of heaven and into flesh, if you will. By the way, another reason, I mentioned the parallel with Ephesians 5, another reason for thinking what, G, what Paul is getting at in 2.7 is, is a drink offering is precisely because he uses that language later in Philippians 2. So, for instance, um, he says this. This is Paul writing in Philippians 2.17, so it's ten verses later. And what he's doing is he's holding Christ up as the supreme example of humility. But then he holds himself up as an example, and then he holds up Timothy, and then he holds up Epaphroditus. So he gives us Christ as the supreme example, but he then gives us some human examples also to emulate. And of course, as we know from other texts, Paul can say, imitate me to his readers, not because Paul was the goal, but because Paul was imitating Christ. And if Paul was imitating Christ and you imitate Paul, you'll be imitating Christ, right? But he says this, this is uh, verse 17 of Philippians 2. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Now, he doesn't use exactly the same language. He speaks of Christ as being poured out in full, as being emptied. He dare not use that language about himself. But still, right, he doesn't want to go to the extreme with respect to his own sacrifice that he, he will go to with respect to describing Christ. But still, the same metaphor is there. Does that make sense? Yeah, so so in, in the incarnation, he doesn't subtract anything of who he is. He instead adds on his uh, human body. 
and and his human soul. And his human soul. Right. Yeah. So, uh, and then the human body. Does he just let that thing go uh, when he when he leaves the earth? What do you mean? Does he stop taking care of it? <laughs> I mean, are you asking about his de- diet and exercise routine? What? <laughs> you just let yourself let go. go, Lord. <laughs> No, actually, once he takes on humanity, he never gives it up. He never. So he still has a body right now. Yes. How long will he have that? Forever. Once he becomes human, he never ceases. When the kingdom comes in full and Christ returns, he will come as the incarnate Lord, as 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 God who has become human, and he remains ever so. Uh, Even now, that is true. Um, Yeah. So once he has become one of us, he will never cease. And of course, we know he is the one whom God had promised to David, right? Because God had promised David there will be one who will reign upon your throne forever. And notice the claim here isn't simply, "Hey, David, there will always be somebody on your throne." Rather, the language of the Old Testament is more explicit. It's not that the throne will never have a time when nobody's on it. It's rather there will be one who will one person who will eternally reign upon your throne, and that, of course, is Christ Himself. You talked about the time when he preached in uh, Luke 4 in Nazareth, uh, Jesus. Where was Jesus at that time? Well, um, he's, <laughs> well he's omnipresent, right? So he's, there's no place he's not. But, but he's in that. Well, yeah. And so how do we understand this, right? Because, you know, and I'll have students ask it this way. Well, wait a minute. When he's in Jerusalem, he's not in Nazareth. And when he's in Capernaum, he's not in, you know, and so forth and so on. Well, the answer is you can't confuse Jesus with the human body he takes on. I'm not claiming the human body of Christ is omnipresent. It's spatially located and spatially limited. But, of course, Christ is not confined to that human body. So, he is omnipresent even though uh, his, his human body and, frankly, his human soul are not. Um, and so, Athanasius isn't claiming that the body of Christ is everywhere present. But rather, Christ himself is everywhere present even if his body isn't. And one of the things that's important is uh, to remember is that Christ is the creative agent of God who not only creates the world initially, but he is the one who upholds all things in being. He continues to preserve all things in existence. Uh, The scriptures are clear on this. Paul in particular is clear on this. Uh, This is uh, a text we talked about last night, Colossians 1. Now, that being the case, part of what Christians have understood historically to be true about his omnipresence is that he is quickening the universe by way of his presence everywhere within it. And so Athanasius' language here is beautiful. He says, just as Christ quickens the body of the baby in the manger, so also by his presence he quickens the entire universe and upholds it in being. And that's orthodoxy. Uh, it's, it's helpful. Um, I think something that's also helpful is to just be... It's still weird. I mean, uh, I mean... Usually, if somebody asks, you know, where were they? Were they in Nazareth? Then we don't. That's the end of the story, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's just when it comes to Trinity, when it comes to incarnation. Uh, if you don't find them somewhat weird, then I think you haven't put yourself outside of Christianity enough to realize to folks on the outside that's 
it's never going to seem just real simple and not weird. Um, yeah, the, in, the incarnation, like the doctrine of the Trinity, is a very difficult doctrine to get a handle on. And as we talked about last night, there are limits to what we can understand here. There's no doubt about that. So there's a point at which we're going to have to acknowledge we encounter mystery. That being said, the church has historically uh, been far more sophisticated in the way it's understood the incarnation than we may realize. And so even though there are limits to our understanding, we may, in this case, punt to mystery a little too quickly often. Uh, and by the way, before we move away from this, I want to address the text you started this with or, or the issue you started this, this conversation with, the, the question about Christ being omniscient. Okay, so what do we mean, uh, or what does the text mean when it describes him as growing in wisdom and knowledge? And what does the text mean when Jesus himself is recorded as saying, no one knows, not the, not the, um, not the uh, angels of heaven, not the, not the Son? Well, first of all, I think you've got to understand the answer to this first and foremost in terms of Jesus' commitment to submission. Right, and, and I, I don't think you can overstate how important it is that Jesus sees his ministry and his life in the flesh as a, a matter of submission to the Father. When he says, no one knows, I don't think the point there is that he's saying, I literally don't know. I think rather the point is this. You've got to understand this is dialogue, this is conversation. You've got to understand how human language works. Let's suppose a young man comes to me at church, my home church, and ask me for my daughter's phone number, right? And let's suppose, as is uh, not a hard thing to imagine, that I do not approve of this young man. And I am unwilling to give this young man my daughter's phone number. Suppose I were to say this to him, no one gets that number. Now, you can imagine my saying that to him, not meaning literally nobody gets that number. I mean, if he understood me to be meaning that, he would be misunderstanding me. He would rightly understand me when I said that to mean I'm emphatically saying I'm not giving it to you, right? I think when Jesus says no one knows, not the, not the angels, not the Son, the point isn't that he literally lacks the knowledge. The point is he is living in submission to the Father, and he is only saying what the Father gives him leave to say. And the Father has not given him leave to disclose this. And so this is an emphatic way of Jesus saying to his followers, I'm not going to tell you. I think that's what's going on with that text. Now, with respect to growing in wisdom and knowledge, I, I think, um, again, you have to think in terms of the submission of Christ. Remember, Christ takes on humanity in its fullness. He takes on not just a human body, which, by the way, involves a human brain, of course. He takes on a human soul. Now, the early church described the human soul that Jesus takes on, and this is the language of the church, well, translated into English, right? But described it as a rational soul. Well, in essence, the idea is this. Jesus is omniscient in virtue of his divinity. But the human, and you can think here in terms of the human mind or the human brain if you want, is not omniscient. I think part of what Jesus does in submission to the Father is commit himself, because the Father wills that he do this, to not drawing on the resources that are his in virtue of his divinity. I think what Jesus is doing is restricting himself only to what's his in virtue of his humanity because that is the will of the Father. So it's part of his submission. And the human brain, if you will, may acquire information. 
So even the, the divine mind of God the Son, which Christ has in virtue of being God the Son, lacks nothing by way of knowledge, that doesn't mean that we don't understand that with respect to his humanity, there are things he doesn't know in, you know, um, by way of his humanity. And so with respect to that, he can learn. Now you gotta be careful here because there's a temptation, and this is heretical as we talked about before. As you talk about this, you wanna always keep in mind there is one person who is God the Son become human, namely Jesus. We, we, uh, we, we, we stray into heresy. There's no other way to put this. If we speak of Jesus as if there are two different persons here. Right? And sometimes I hear well-meaning Christians talk about Jesus' human nature doing something or His divine nature doing something. Well, no, 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 no. It's not the natures that do things. It's the person. And there's one person who has the two natures. But we can nonetheless talk about what is true of Him in virtue of His divinity and what is true of Him in virtue of His humanity. And he's not omniscient in virtue of his humanity, though he is omniscient in virtue of his divinity. Does that make sense? It, it strikingly does. Yes. Yeah, shocking. Uh, shockingly as well. Yeah. Um, the uh, what, two or three books to recommend on the incarnation. Uh, one of them, maybe an introduction level. Well, I think what I'd recommend first is uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay. Who published those? <laughs> yeah. No, actually, uh, as far as books on the Incarnation, I think the place I would start is the one I mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, the early church father named Athanasius and his work on the Incarnation uh, is absolutely... Um, uh, well, it's very, very important in the history of Christian articulation. You can indeed. You can find it on Amazon. The early Christian writer series or... Uh, no, actually, the version that I'm familiar with that's in print, which has, by the way, an introduction by C.S. Lewis, okay. interestingly enough, uh, is published by St. Basil's Press. St. Basil is an Eastern Orthodox seminary. Is that press. on Amazon as well? Yeah, that, you can find that on Amazon. Um, I'd recommend that. If you want something uh, a little more sophisticated, uh, there's a book by a philosopher named Tom Morris called The Logic of God Incarnate. Carolinian. That's true. Yeah, that's right. In fact, he's a he's a Tar Heel. Um, God help him. Sorry. Oh, man. I mean, literally a, a UNC graduate. Yeah, I, know I love this guy. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> no. In all seriousness, uh, Morris's book is a little more challenging, but it's really, really good. Uh, and he's also the inter- his, uh, Is it the only wise God? No, that's William Lane Craig. No, I'm sorry. Uh, our idea of God. Our idea of God is also Tom Morris. Now that's much more accessible. That's written for lay people. And that's got an introduction. I think there's a chapter on the incarnation and a chapter on the Trinity yeah. in there. Uh, that's yeah. also Tom Morris. It's also on Amazon as well. I'm yeah. Sure. I, I, I think they came out with a new edition. Uh, I think it, uh, it, it's if it may be in print now with Whitman and Stock. Okay. Right. I know Logic of God Incarnate has, it was initially published by Cornell University Press. It's now published by Whitman Stock. Okay. Now, I think there's actually uh, another one out there. Uh, Oh, there may be. Yeah, a revised edition. Okay. Uh, You're probably right about that. Really accessible book by a really stout guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. Um, Notre Dame guy, right? Yeah, well, at least he was. He was until he was. But I left, and then he left, because what was the point? The submission idea. You yeah. talked about this a lot. Uh, 
you know, just to be frank on this, this is a tough thing, even as a pastor, to... I want to run from this. I've wanted to run from this for a long time. Uh, there's probably, I mean, outside of how our culture understands sexuality these days, compared to how the biblical text does it, how our culture understands submission uh, in multiple relationships, not just marital relationships, and how the biblical texts seem to understand it, they're so opposed to one another, and yet it seems that we can't run from the idea of submission even in understanding God from what you're saying. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, you know, and as I as I said earlier, if we're called to emulate Christ and Christ's understanding of himself is primarily driven by this uh by this awareness that uh that he is uh, you know, voluntarily submitting to to the Father, then we shouldn't be surprised if we're called to submit to Christ and to one another. And to return to the point I made a little while ago, you know, it's not just one set of Christians who are called to be submissive, right? It's not just wives and children and servants, right? I mean, we think of those, of course, as, right? But, but the husband and, and the, the father whom, who's addressed in, in, in Ephesians, I guess that's six, and, uh, and, and the masters are all also called to submission. It's mutual submission. Now, what we have to understand is, given the different roles we have, submission might look different. But still, what the husband's called to is every bit as much submission as what the wife is called to. And as I understand it, um, submission and humility and love understood biblically are, um, I can't say coin because coins only have two sides, but if you had a three-sided coin, they would all be you know, sides of the same coin. Yeah. Um, or maybe even identical. Um, right? So that what is it to be humble understood biblically? Well, if you take the description in Philippians 2 we've been talking about seriously, humility involves not, not pursuing your own good or your own interest, but rather the good or the interest of, of others, particularly your brothers and sisters in Christ. I think in the end, that's what love and submission are all about. It's about being willing to sacrificially forego what you want and what you think is good for you. It's not so much wants as what is good for you uh, from your point of view in order to pursue what is good for those around you, uh, specifically the, the household of God. So. Yeah, and, I mean, as Christians, what we have been given in Christ and humility and submission and love is so unique mm -hmm. what the rest of this culture has to offer. It's so beautiful um, compared mm -hmm. to what's seen out. But let me get this straight. Just so I understand, Jesus, er, the second person of the Trinity and the Father are equal in terms of their divinity. Is that correct? That's correct. But yet, one member submits to the other member what does that tell us then about submission? Because what we're typically told is, well, we can't affirm submission because to affirm submission would be to say that one person is less in value than another. Yeah, well, this is a point I was making earlier, right? Um, given that the Son is equally divine with the Father, it is clearly the case that submission doesn't mean inferiority. So if, you know, in, if in virtue of a particular role you have, you're called to submit Right. That that doesn't mean you're inferior to the one to whom you're called to submit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but 
given the roles you have, again, in the call for believers to mutually submit themselves one to another, right, that, that's going to play out differently in different contexts with respect to different roles you have. Um, you know, uh, the way in which I submit with respect to my children, who are also to submit to me, is different than the way I submit to my wife, who is also called to submit to me, right, because it's mutual. Um, you know, so it plays itself out differently in these different roles and relationships. But again, we're all called to mutual submission one to another. And, uh, and I don't think you can get past this if you take Ephesians 5 seriously, which I would suggest you should do. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, all right, I've got one more question here. It seems. And Ed, I have two more answers. Um. <laughs> Maybe I'll put them both out and you take the one you want. Hey, wait, that's, that's another question. Um, uh, I don't think we could uh, have a complete talk on the incarnation of Trinity without you defining the term hypostatic union. What in the world does the term hypostatic union mean? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, the language, the term hypostatic arises from the Christian confessional or creedal statement that was uh, uh, produced at the ecumenical council. And ecumenical council is, of course, a council to which leadership from all over the church was invited. Right, and there's this early Christian ecumenical council at a place called Chalcedon. And that council articulates its understanding of the teaching of Christ and the apostles with respect to the nature of Christ. And something that's important to remember about early Christian councils or early yeah, early Christian councils, when they issue conciliar decrees or creeds or confessions, whatever you want to call them, um when they issue these, they don't see themselves as creating doctrine. Rather, what the early church understands itself to be doing when it, when it articulates these confessions or creeds is stating what she has always believed. Right? So this is what we believe Christ and the apostles taught. But heretofore, we haven't felt the necessity to be this precise about it. Now, what usually gives rise to the need for precision is the emergence of heresy and false teaching, right? And, uh, and, and, and when false teachers arise and they're teaching contrary to what the church understands to have been the teaching of Christ and his apostles, then the church will typically uh, make a point of articulating very precisely uh, what is believed in a way that, that rules out the false teaching. Now, that being said, the term hypostatic arises from a word in the confession that came out of Chalcedon, which refers to the two natures of Christ, the divine nature on the one hand and the human nature on the other, as, uh, as being united together in one, and forgive me, I mean, this is just the language in the Greek, in one hypostasis. So the question is, well, what in the world is a hypostasis? Well, um, I don't think we need to get too bogged down or worried about it, but the basic notion of a hypostasis is a bearer of properties or a bearer of natures. So the idea is this. When we talk about the hypostatic union, we're talking about the union of the two natures of Christ in one individual, not in two individuals. Right? So that, that's what the phrase refers to. In uh, the Chalcedonian Confession, you can uh, look at Google that. Uh, Chalcedonian Confession, you'll get it I mean, immediately. So it's a beautiful statement uh, from the church uh, in 381. Does that sound right? Yeah. I think so. I can't remember. I'm, I'm slow. All right. um, that's all right. When you Google it, you can probably find it as well. All right. Uh, questions? Yes. 
If I understand you correctly. Yes, sir. Jesus, the Son, became fully human. Right. But he was fully divine. Yes, sir. And he's not omnipresent while he's fully human. No, actually, he remains omnipresent. What isn't omnipresent is his human body. Right, but but he he is more than his human body. The divine mind of Christ is omnipresent. Right, he, yeah. Well, right, because apart from the incarnation, right, God is not embodied. God is spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and truth, as Jesus says to the woman at the well. Right, so um, to to risk offending Huey Lewis by co-opting his song, right, apart from the incarnation, God ain't got nobody. Right, um, right. So, so, so the Son, apart from the incarnation, has no body. But, but, so what is he? He's a spirit or a mind. He is, with respect to his uh, divine mind or divine spirit, omnipresent, even though his physical body that he takes on is not. That would be the way the church would historically understand this. Um, so, he remains. Incarnate, as, as I, you know, Tim asked me a few minutes ago, even now Jesus is embodied. He's a human being. Is he in this room? Yes, Jesus is omnipresent, but his human body's not in this room, so far as I know. Yeah. Um, No, it, it 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 was Jesus walking on water, and and what's walking on water is Jesus in his human flesh and human soul, right? But with divine power. Yeah, although I, I think the way Christians have typically understood Christ's miracles, precisely because of the point of submission, and this is a slightly different issue. I think the way Christians have historically thought about Christ's miracles is that when he performs the miracles, he's typically not drawing on his own power, but on the power of the Father. Right? Why? Because he's willingly, not laying aside in the sense of, of divesting himself of his power, but he is voluntarily refraining from drawing on what's on his power. Uh, and so most Christians historically have thought it is the Father whose power is operative in the miracles. In fact, in Ephesians 1, um, this is uh, toward the end of the chapter, verses 15 to 23, uh, uh, Paul explicitly refers to the great power by which the Father raised Jesus from the dead, indicating that it wasn't Christ who raised himself, but rather the Father who raised him up from the dead. Which is interesting, because that's, that's the case, even though Christ had said, I have the authority to take it back up. Anyway, I'm sorry, I've kind of gone astray off your question, which rarely happens with me. Yeah. <laughs> Any others? Yes? Kind of follow up on that. What would you say and what comment would you make for those who believe that in his human nature, Jesus was an act being filled with spirit, performing the miracles uh, as, you know, they would say with Christians today, yeah. you know, if you're filled with the Spirit, you'll be able to do what God calls you to do. If there are those who believe that, how would you Well, first of all, uh, I don't agree with the basic point. I think if you're walking by the Spirit, 
you will be filled by the Spirit and you will, of course, be able to do what God calls you to do. I also believe what God calls me to do is radically different than what He's called Christ to do, obviously. Uh, so I'm not expecting any time soon to turn water into wine. Oh wait, we're Baptist. Grape juice. Um, right? I'm, I'm not expecting to do that, right? Uh, although, were it God's will that I do so, then by His power it would happen. Uh, now that being said, there's no, uh, there's no inconsistency in claiming that Christ is operating by the will of the Father and drawing on the will of the Father and also affirming that he is filled with the Spirit. In fact, I, I, I don't think uh, you can deny that Jesus is filled by the Spirit, um, certainly through his entire earthly ministry. Uh, in fact, the dissension of the Spirit as a dove on Christ uh, which takes place uh, at uh, at the baptism seems, among other things, to be an indication that he is in his ministry that follows, filled with the Spirit. Now, that being said, uh, and this is a complete parenthetical aside, but you know, I got the mic, so I'm going to make it. Um, one of the things that's interesting about the imagery of the dove, um, and I'll talk about this uh, actually in the last session when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, one of the things that's interesting about the imagery of the dove is that in intertestamental Judaism, in other words, in Jewish circles between the close of the Old Testament and the New Testament era, the dove came to be associated with Messiah. And here's the reason. Um, when, uh, when Noah wants to find out whether or not the waters have receded, he sends out a dove, right? When, when the dove returns... And, and the waters have receded. Do you remember what the what the dove has in its mouth? It's an olive branch, which, by the way, of course, we associate with peace. Well, what's interesting is in that intertestamental period, Jews came to associate the olive branch with Messiah. So when the dove descends upon Christ in the providence of God in the context in which this happens, it's a very subtle acknowledgement that this is, in fact, the Messiah. I take that to be the point of this spirit descending like a dove rather than in some other fashion. So anyway, again, I mean, that's kind of off topic, but it's interesting. So. Other questions I can go astray on? Yes, ma'am. Um, are some of those heresies, some of the isms, are they associated or related to particular religions? Or? Well, they're all Christian heresies, which means they're affirmed by people who describe themselves as Christians, but whose views are in fact not Christian. Um, now, that doesn't mean, as we talked about last night, that there aren't non-Christian religions that that fall into these heresies, but typically these are people who think they're Christians. Um, <coughs> and to be clear, um, uh, and I'll mention Mormonism here as an example, um, Mormons want to describe themselves as Christians, and may genuinely believe they are, but the Christ of Mormonism is not the Christ of Christianity. It's certainly not the Christ or the Jesus of the New Testament, right? And so uh, when they talk about being Christians, they're not Christians in anything like the sense in which we talk about Christianity historically. Um, so anyway, I, I hope that's helpful. <laughs>